This podcast is brought to you by the African turquoise killifish. The name killifish is of the Germanic origin, with the root word meaning bay or gulf. Some might guess that with the word kill being part of their name, that they might be ferocious creatures. However, they are actually a lovely laboratory species capable of getting along with tank mates. The killifish is an excellent model for aging studies due to its short life cycle and because of the dry season in Africa, many parents don't live to see their offspring. Don't worry, ghost killifish parents. Your children are doing just fine and you should be very proud of them. <laughs> Hello, my fishy friends, and welcome to another rousing episode of the Getting Fishy With It podcast. Whee! Yay! Hello. <laughs> I'm Josh. I'm Amber. I'm Christine. And today we will be talking about regulations of laboratory fish, which is a, which is a hot topic amongst the lab community. Oh, yeah. But before we get started, let's uh, see how everyone's week has been. Amber, would you like to start? Sure. I haven't really done very much. I guess last week we, my husband and I, we went to do like a one-off like D&D campaign at mm. a local brewery. And so that was a lot of fun. And we got to meet new people and make some new friends. I don't know why it's so hard to make friends as an adult. Um, but I, it was so funny because we had a couple of people like at our table and we got put with the people that had some experience with playing D&D, but not mm. like experts, you know, like expert level, whatever mm -hmm. that is. And so I got to play like a warlock. My husband was like a wizard. And then we had like a couple <laughs> other wizards and we had a bard who was like, freaking hilarious because he's just like i just like to read books on ships because we were in like a library and he's just oh, like i just like picture books like i don't want any words less words the better that's hilarious that's so, so funny but yeah it went really well and because usually i am pretty shy around people but this mm -hmm. is like my second time doing something like this so i felt mm. a lot better about it but cool. anyways um i was just waiting downstairs for my husband to finish up in the restroom and this guy, the guy who played the bar was just kind of standing around. And I was like, hey, can I can I get your number? <laughs> just like, well, that didn't come off creepy. But he's like, no, that's fine. I was like, yeah, we should do this again sometime. It's like, yeah. So, yep, there's that. Making friends that's as awesome. adults is hard as hell, man. So kudos to you for doing yeah. that. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I you guys played like vile magic users. I'm not a magic user fan, so I'm in any games, I don't play magic. I love playing so. warlocks. I just love really? because every time there was like we had to kill somebody, I was like Eldritch Blast. <laughs> and they were like, You're too close to do that. You you that's have so to back funny. up. I'm like, okay, I'm that's gonna back hilarious. up the defeat. That's <laughs> funny. So I don't know. I've never done D D. I don't know anything about it other than gotcha. like games that use the mechanic in like real like in video games. Yeah. But um like do warlocks in D D get like familiars and stuff or like demons? Mm hmm Okay. Oh, yeah. sick. And so Just like, you wow. have like usually a yeah. demon pact. And okay. so it's with whoever you want. And okay. Then, yeah. In my campaign that I'm doing with my husband and other friends, I have a familiar that I forgot about. Oh. And, so, <laughs> and it's starved yeah. to death. He's trapped well, in his like genie crying. bottle. <laughs> and my husband's like, you hear of cry, like in the far <laughs> distance. And you're I'm just like, what? And they're just everybody is like, you're familiar. And I was like, I have a familiar. It's like oh, a Tamagotchi no. that you left in a drawer. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I haven't so done funny. anything with it. Sure. So, but we'll see. That's so funny. So That's he's hilarious. useless for fighting now. Like he's all atrophied. Yeah. 
that's great. That's hilarious. But I'm glad that you had a good time doing that. I want to do that one day. Awesome. I got to get Me over too. my like fear of like acting out in public you yeah, know that's thing. what gets me too like, oh, dude, I, you just gotta do improv you'll you'll lose that fear um, real fast i guess <laughs> hey, we gotta do it with josh because yeah, josh yeah, is yeah, yeah. just gonna lead us and yeah. you and me are gonna be like <laughs> absolutely that would be hilarious God, that would be my dream oh can we all live can we just like move to the same city finally i tell you we'll start a commune and we'll have a zebrafish facility that's what we're gonna do <laughs> run by wizards mm, <laughs> and one not wizard yeah, apparently well, i'm hates a ranger magic. only i'm a ranger only that's <laughs> oh, like a rogue okay, my last name it. is archer and i have to be a ranger oh that's true yeah. i never thought about that i could see you as a halfling christine mm, i guess rogue. i want to be a dragon person Oh, dragonborn? <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to do. I'm not a furry, I swear. Guys, I hate to say it. This is not a D&D podcast. No, it's not. We have to move on. We have to move on. What about you, Christine? Uh, so I don't have much to share from this week, but I do have like a making a ass of myself in the facility story to tell you guys. So, and I told you, Ooh. I wasn't going to tell you beforehand. <laughs> so I was trying to be like real slick and cool, like the facility manager that I am. And I was like, so cool about this. And it really blew up in my face. So a little backstory, like, you know how on the ends of a lot of the zebrafish racks, you'll have like a hose to like fill mm-hmm. tanks or whatever. So mm-hmm. we have these hoses. They're like the curly hoses mm-hmm. and they have a ball valve at the top to like stop the water from flowing through the valve. But then it's the end like the what we have are like kind of those like gas tank hose things that have like a trigger on them yes i have two of them yeah looks exactly like that yeah it's like they're black and they just have like a hose like it looks like a gas tank thing Mm -hmm. i don't know what to call it anyway we've had issues where some of the older ball valves at the top of the braid the the curly hose leaks a little bit and so it took a really long time to get somebody out to fix it because i don't have that kind of expertise to fix it myself i suck at plumbing trying to get better at it but that's another story and we finally, I don't know, a month or two ago, got those leaky valves fixed. And so now we no longer have to turn off the valve at the top of the curly hose. You can just leave it on all the time. But yeah. as you're probably aware, Josh, those gun things, the like gas hose guns, if they get old, they tend to stick if someone they like do. opens them all the way. So I always, when I train folks, I'm like, just be gentle. Don't open it all the way because it's going to stick. Um, but then some people just don't. Do, they just do it and then you see them like struggling and the water's going everywhere and they're like what am i supposed to do with this water and you're always just kind of like do i help them or do i just watch them struggle from my like spot where they can't see me looking at them laughing <laughs> uh anyway so this person who had like uses this one particular hose because that's where their fish are um uh, i saw him like turning off the valve at the top and i like kind of sauntered over and i'm like oh you know uh, we fixed that. So you don't have to turn it off anymore now. And so I reach up to turn it back on and he's like, no, 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 no. Uh... <laughs> and so I'm reaching over it and like literally my, the, the, the valve thing, the gas hose thing is chest height on me. Oh. And I turned it on and clearly this thing, this gas hose thing had stuck and it just drenched me <laughs> with water from like my shoulders all the way down to my pants. Ooh. I was drenched because the water came out at pretty high pressure. And there, everyone, there was a bunch of people in the room that saw it. And I'm laughing my head off because like I'm not phased by getting water all over me. But I was trying to be so slick and I failed so epically. <laughs> There's water all over the floor. And I'm like, oh, let me get the squeegee, you know. <laughs> and then I walk out of the fish room. And then, you know, the worst part is when you get water all over yourself and you leave the fish room, people like 
you go up into the main like main part of the university building and people are like why is this lady something wet like is what happened raining? to her yeah it's like what happened to her she's just wearing like street clothes just soaking wet so yeah that was great because i i definitely had to go to the bathroom after that and it was just like well i guess 15 people will see my soaked ass <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. that's what happened to me and i just thought it was funny and like <laughs> i don't know i it was a little bit embarrassing but also it was like i tried to do a bit and like be cool and it totally i failed so epically yeah. so <laughs> that's what's new with me how about you josh uh i should just say you the way i fixed that is you can i know it's scary but you can wd-40 right into the trigger housing. the like pin thing the pin yep. that sticks i out. just kept, oh, i just sure. wd-40 yeah. and i keep just pumping it and it totally okay. cleared up and fixed it and you could just kind of empty extra water into buckets or whatever if you want to like kind of like make sure you're flushing it but sure it worked great and i never had to tell them again Ooh. like it, it worked amazingly so thank wd-40 you. you're I welcome never make that mistake again so thank you very much <laughs> we have wd-40 we use it for all kinds of stuff in the facility so thank you i'll do that all tomorrow. the time <laughs> that goes for you too listeners if you have a sticky trigger thingy <laughs> whatever that thing is called yeah yeah uh let's see uh so yeah i'm just in the stage of getting ready to move so i am i've like reverted back to college where i like walk down the street and i see a box that's interesting and i'm like ooh, i could use this and i grab yeah. it like i literally <laughs> was walking back home from work after like a work function today and it was like 8 p.m i was just carrying a tv box down the street and people were probably looking at me and wondering if this man is herculean man is carrying an actual tv in there but i wasn't I did look strong. Honey, you mean Hercules. That's so funny. I do have a question, and this is something like the listeners wouldn't be able to see, but is that a fancy live edge table behind you or a piece of plywood? A fancy live edge? That, that, is that like a table? Yeah, like right there. You know, like think of like a fancy table oh, made out right of like here. a single piece of wood. Mm-hmm. No, this is, it's a little, this right behind me yeah, is yeah, a, yeah. is a, it's a, um, a TV table, like a oh, little okay, TV okay, dinner okay, table okay. or whatever. Okay. I thought know, it was yeah. like a fancy coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> no, we chose not to have a coffee table in this apartment because we have okay. like space in the middle. For sure. And I don't know. I guess like it's nice for doing in-home exercises, but nowadays it's like the gyms are open and stuff. So right. but yeah, but no, I love those. Those tables are like the best thing I bought. So they're so nice for like when you're just eating on the couch and watching modern family or whatever sure (laughs) anyway that's that's it with me so uh amber i guess uh, you can take it away and so as josh mentioned we're going to be talking about laboratory fish regulations everyone's favorite yes but actually no so (laughs) if you're not interested you can just turn fast forward to the end of the episode (laughs) so you can listen to some nice music yeah as always yeah you'll miss out on all of amber's amazing drops so that's true <laughs> that is true i will try to put in as many drops as possible do it in this episode <laughs> but yeah and so today we'll be talking about fish regulations and kind of the role that they play in ethical research practices in animal welfare and, and so i know this is a topic that a lot of people like some people have a strong understanding of but most people don't and mm-hmm. i think it's like something also that people can you know have more of a conversation about just because I think, you know, there's like a lot of confusion surrounding, especially when there's like new rules that come out. People are kind of just like, well, like, what does this exactly mean for like how we work with fish or how we Mm -hmm. use fish in research? And so I think it's good that, you know, Christine and Josh gave me the opportunity to do episode on this for our podcast, um, just so that we can give kind of everyone like an overview of laboratory fish regulations. So with that being said, So first we'll talk about like regulatory bodies. And so in laboratory animal science, we have what is known as IACUC. 
USDA and NIH, which dictate standards for responsible laboratory fish research, ensuring both scientific integrity and ethical treatment. And so we'll first start off with IACUC, which is the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. And so this is a locally appointed committee responsible for reviewing and ensuring the ethical and humane treatment of animals in research, teaching, and testing conducted at institutions receiving federal funding in accordance with the Animal Welfare Act. One of my colleagues refers to this as the, uh, she says they're the popo. She says yeah. they're the police. Is that offensive? Like, is that so offensive I, to the iCook? I, I feel like I they don't it, like it. I am offended by it and I'm not an iCook person. I'm just, it's just that like, <laughs> I I have a little bit of like a sensitivity to the like us versus them thing. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of thought and I mean, maybe sometimes it's a little tiny bit founded but like this idea that the iacook's job is to catch you you know yeah. and it's like okay they can be re reactionary to things obviously reports they get or whatever but like ultimately like everybody's kind of working for the same team it's just like you have to look beyond just like the actual like rules setting that they mm -hmm. you know so i have a lot of feelings about that but so the iacook to me i'm sure that they they are present in like other countries but this is like we're talking specifically here in this episode about u.s regulations right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because in canada we don't call them an iacook we call the a, a uh, animal care committee an acc but works the same way same makeup like same uh, mandate mm -hmm. so just fyi yeah and Josh, as you were saying, like with Iacook kind of being known as the police, like I hear that all the time. Yeah. And I'm kind of more just like, no, we're just trying to ensure that, you know, the animals are being treated right. Mm. Um, just because they really haven't provided consent for us to do research on mm -hmm. them. Mm. And so we just want to ensure that, you know, they're being well taken care of. And then also that the humans that are using them are also, you know, trained uh, to be able to do that. And so, yeah, I try and kind of spin it in a different way rather than being mm. like, oh, we're police and we're just basically, <laughs> you know, telling people what to do because that's not really it. True. Um, we're upholding like regulations that have been set either by the institution, by the state or, you know, by the government. And so the iCook membership usually consists of at least five members. And these five members are either one veterinarian with training or experience in laboratory animal science and medicine who has direct or delegate authority and responsibility for activities involving animals at the institution, one practicing scientist experienced in research with animals, one member whose primary concerns are in the non-scientific area. So this could be a lawyer, a member of a clergy, um, anybody with those types of roles, and then mm. one member who is not affiliated with the institution other than as a member of the IACUC. And so we do have um, five members. We actually have more members than that um, mm -hmm. for our entire IACUC committee, but we do have at least like five people that fit those roles. And so, um, and they also serve kind of like on the committee when like reviewing protocols. And so I don't know if that's also been like the same experience for you guys at your institutions. I feel like our IACUC is fairly large, uh, mm -hmm. but I don't know how many people are on it. The, the thing that they have really tried to do, and I think this has been beneficial kind of for everyone, is try to make sure that they're, you know, our institution has a fairly large number of zebrafish compared to maybe your average lab animal facility. And so, you know, sometimes the nuance in the regulation and even just like, you know, SOPs and how the facilities are run, like, when you're talking about internal policy rather than like the larger like regulatory landscape, sometimes the fish get like 
missed or like how they're they were they're worked with is misinterpreted or you know the worst case scenario and this is the thing that pis get real mad about is when like the the policy which is often very rodent centric is mm-hmm. like try you try to like jam that into the zebrafish world and like I don't like to, and this is something that's like always been weird, a bugbear for me is like, I don't want to be like, oh no, that's a rodent thing. This doesn't work at all. You know, that's not a great attitude to have either, <laughs> but it like, it ha- there's more nuance, right? It's not a black and white thing where it's like, this is for rodents and it does not work for zebrafish ever. It's like a case by case thing. Right. So our, the big thing for us, because we have so such a large zebrafish presence, um, like 15 or so PIs are working with zebrafish at any given time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have zebrafish folks on the IACUC to make sure that like, you know, if we're mm-hmm. talking about a new protocol coming through, even like a new PI coming in just to make sure that what they're saying they can do makes mm-hmm. sense in the context of the space that we have. Like yeah. we can't have someone come in and do virus work in our facility. We do not have the setup for that. Whereas, you know, an IA cook that doesn't necessarily know the nuances of our facility. I keep saying mm-hmm. nuance. <laughs> the minutia of our facility. Minutia. There we go. <laughs> um, but like they could ram something through that's like, uh, we don't have the capacity for that. You know, even if someone wanted to do surgery on zebrafish in our facility, like they, we don't have space to like set up a surgical suite. We don't have any of that yeah. stuff. Right. So it's nice to have kind of stakeholders in there that can like because I don't get included in those things. And I maybe one day I'll be on the Aya Cook. I don't know if I want to be. Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. So anyway, I don't know about you, Josh, like what your Aya Cook looks like at your institution. So I don't know how many members there are, but it's like 20 or something. Like it's a lot. Like yeah. there's a lot of people on there because you need like stand-ins and stuff like that. You, sure. need, you know, every like you know, chunk to be represented. Does it need to be an odd number of people uh, for quorum or whatever? Is that a thing? I think there, yeah, you do need to meet the quorum. I don't know if it needs to be odd numbered or not. Okay, because like voting, like in, on boards and stuff, it has to be an odd number of people so that like voting isn't like at a stalemate. Anyway, sorry. Mm, I just, gotcha. I, I know I made a weird face, Josh. I'm not mad. I was just thinking <laughs> to myself. No, no, you're good. It's fine. It's That's the perfect way to communicate that you have something to say, actually. Like- <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, our, you know, well, first of all, it's awesome that you have zebrafish people on your uh, iCook. We, I don't believe we have any, and none of our PIs mm. are serving on there. Um, wait, how many PIs who work with zebrafish, or how many zebrafish people do you have in total? Are you talking about PIs? We have 15 plus PIs, like it varies okay. seasonally. We have like 60 people that are using the fish room, and two of them, one is a PI, one is not. Okay. okay one is so like that just makes a sense. scientist, yeah. All right, so yeah, like they're, we only, we only have like, we only really have four, really four PIs working with fish, zebrafish specifically. And then like, you know, there might be another associate research scientist in there somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not a lot and they're all pretty busy and none of them are serving on that committee. So all that to say is that like, I do think that it makes it a little bit more troublesome or a little bit tougher when things are coming through. It could be for better or for worse, right? There's two, there's two outcomes. Yeah. The one outcome is, uh, you know, it goes through and it's, and it's a totally normal protocol but you know because it's sort of like they're trying to shoehorn it into the mouse world it doesn't really make sense and so there's like pushback right mm-hmm. and then the other thing is is like if those people aren't there 
it could be that the researcher is getting something through that like non-zebrafish PIs would be like, wait a minute, hang on. This is like, yeah. you need to fix this, right? right. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of things like surgeries. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a whole discussion with our vets and stuff like that about what's required to do a mm -hmm. surgery on a fish, right? right. Because it, it, with mammals, most of the time the requirement is you have to have a face covering, you have to have head, uh, hair bonnet, um, obviously like aseptic technique, right? The, all sterile those things, tools, sterile, sterile tools. tools, but like some of those things don't necessarily apply with fish because of the way that you do it. Like you can't, you know, a zebra fish is so tiny. You can't really like really make a drape yeah. over it. Like the idea of sterile techniques a little different. So like mm -hmm. all these things are, are different. And so, you know, it requires a lot more discussion. And because there's not an iCook member who knows a lot about zebrafish, oftentimes that means that there's more discussion with the veterinarians or more discussion with like the fish experts like myself to try mm -hmm. to like get everything together. So um, I actually am finding myself pretty soon doing a training. I forget if I told you guys this, I'm doing like a training for our iCook where I'm teaching them like oh, sort yeah. of like what we're going to be like what to look out for and like, like, you know, just basically giving them an overview of like aquatics and, and that's great. You no, know, which is great. I love it. But also it's kind of funny. It's like, you're, you're telling them all the things to look out for so that you could eventually could get, you know, you could <laughs> yeah. get dinged. Right? Sure. Yeah. 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 No, it's true. But I mean, like, I don't know, I think we're all working towards a common goal. So it's yes. like, it's good in the end. Absolutely. Uh, I, for me, like the most dreaded thing other than a new PI from outside coming in and like, I've had this happen to us a couple times where like we're kind of our own little zebrafish core. We don't we're we're not part of the animal care department. We've had a couple times where a PI has been like foisted upon us with a mm. protocol that got approved, and none of us knew this person was coming because they worked mm. in our department or whatever. And everyone's kind of like, uh, we don't do this work in our facility. Mm. Like uh, nobody does this. Like I would say ninety nine percent of the people that do work in my facility do embryological work. So. I tell people like most of the zebrafish that are in our facility are broodstock. Those are adult animals that are just there to make eggs and have a good time. Like that's literally <laughs> that's literally what they but do. Crank up the Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> They're just there to make eggs and just eat to their heart's content, right? Uh, and probably fight with each other because they're jerks. But that's a you know. But Some are, yeah. <laughs> one thing that is dread that I dread and like I try the the problem is I don't find out about it until maybe it's too late and like something's been approved. Are the PIs that are rodent users that suddenly want to do zebrafish work and you're like mm. oh this got approved what <laughs> you want to do what with the fish that you did previously with the rodents no <laughs> so <laughs> that's been a challenge be yeah yeah and i mean it's not even that it can't be done it's just that like it's never been done or like there's not yeah. a lot of evidence that like this is actually a valuable model organism for what you're trying to do you know so anyway Sorry, continue. I have a question for you, uh, Amber. So those last two categories, like you said, one member whose primary concern are non-scientific, you know, lawyer, member of clergy, something like that. And then the other member is not affiliated with the institution other than as a member of the ICUC. So is that like a scientist from another institution or like what's a typical example of that? Yeah, so for us, that would be our community reviewers. And so people that uh. are not affiliated with the institution and they're coming from outside and they can have whatever role they have like outside of that institution, but we call them like our community reviewers. Yeah. Um, as for the one member whose primary concerns are in a non-scientific area, that one kind of confused me. This is again, all from, you can look this up online mm -hmm. um, and they have kind of everything laid out. And so I'm not exactly sure we probably don't have any members 
like this um, where they're like lawyers we it's mainly like scientists or like veterinarians or like community reviewers but we do have like some reviewers that are in research safety and so if you Mm. are using certain like substances or things like that on the animals they also kind of review um, like the protocols that like pertain to those sections and so that might Mm. be maybe the one member that closely aligns with that I know cool. back home we used to call the like community person. The term we used was member of the public. Yeah, and so nice. like there would be the yeah there would be volunteer <laughs> postings that you would see sometimes. Like we, I think like at institutions I've been at in the past, they would like there are websites where you can look for volunteer opportunities, and it's kind of just considered a volunteer opportunity. Yeah, um, and mm-hmm. that's how we would find those folks. And I for the the people who like are non scientific. The way I understood it was like, you know how there's a list of people that can like notarize a document for you or like, Mm -hmm. you know, be a second signer on like if you need to get your first passport or something like that. And they're like certain certain list of types of professionals that I always Mm. thought it's the same type of people. (laughs) It's like those same people that are professionals because they have a license in something or they have a like professional or paraprofessional organization that they are beholden to or like licensed by. Those are the people that are this like member of the public that's a professional, whatever that means, a firefighter yeah, Mm. or a doctor or a dentist. Yeah. And so it could be, again, it's like, when looking at this, some of it is very vague. And so I think it kind of allows the institutions to kind of determine, okay, who are, you know, the type of people that are going to fill these spots besides like, oh, veterinarian, you're going to have to find someone who's, you know, veterinarian in this field. But that all goes back to, you know, kind of our discussion where you want to make sure that you get people that can, you know, kind of represent like Mm. the different you know, areas within the field or the different animals that are being used. And so with our rodent users, you want people that are familiar with like rodents and using them for research. Or if they're like large animals, you want people to be familiar with that. And then especially zebrafish, um, mm-hmm. which we do have like um, researchers on the committee who are familiar with using zebrafish in research. So that has been really helpful when reviewing uh, zebrafish protocols. And so yeah, that's why it's just really important to have like good representation because we kind of want this to be, at least for like our IACUC, we want this to be like a good like collaboration between all different like units um, or like different people within the committee. So that way, like when we're, you know, going to approve a protocol or we are going to not approve a protocol, we want to make like, we just want to have like good peace of mind that we're doing the right thing or making like the right decision and not just like passing something on because we don't understand like what's going on. Mm. Sure. Makes sense. So moving on from that, unless you guys had anything else to add, the Animal Welfare Act is the federal law in the United States that regulates the treatment and well-being of animals used in research, exhibition, transportation, and by dealers. And so this is enforced by the USDA So United States Department of Agriculture, which doesn't really pertain to fish users, that mostly Mm -hmm. pertains to um, warm-blooded animals. And so the AWA actually excludes most cold-blooded animals, so that means fish are not generally protected. Mm. Um, However, other federal, state, or local regulations and ethical considerations often apply to the use and care of laboratory fish. And then laboratory fish are covered by the Public Health Service, so the PHS policy on the humane care and use of laboratory animals. 
And so this policy applies to all vertebrate animals used in research, testing, and training that are supported by PHS funds. And so funds being like government funds, things like that. Like NIH grants and stuff, yes. right? Yeah. Okay. So NIH, which is actually the largest branch of PHS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, this includes various species of fish commonly used in laboratory settings. And so PHS policy actually requires institutions that receive these funds to establish and maintain an IACUC. And so you actually have to have an IACUC if you're receiving government funds. Uh, required. Okay. That's smart. so what's weird is like, and this is something that was a little shocking to me. I kind of knew about this before I came here to the US, but like, <laughs> so two things, the Animal Welfare Act covers a lot of animals, but it does not cover rats and mice, which yeah. is wild. Uh, and for certain genuses, right? Because that's like, right. yes, yeah. Certain genuses. Yeah. Like, yeah, like mus for instance, deer mice right. covered by USDA. Yeah, USDA, right. yeah. So it's yeah. crazy the way the regs are. Sorry, mm -hmm. just wanted yeah, it's to like enjoy. a real like, but like the you know the most common species like ratus, ratus, and mus musculus, right? Those two mm -hmm. species are not animals in the eyes of the AWA. The other thing though, and this is the other like, and you hear animal rights folks talking that the little Swiss cheese they love to pick at is like, PHS policy, like you said, covers like fund grant funded like NIH, et cetera, grant funded work, but mm. like a CRO or another organization that doesn't receive any funding from the government, none of this applies. Yeah. And that's, the PHS policy rather doesn't apply. Yeah. And that can be a bit problematic, especially looking at companies right now that mm -hmm. have been using or doing animal research mm -hmm. where their IACUC, they may not have an IACUC. Actually. It's totally voluntary whether they want to have an IACUC and like exactly. things like, you know, we'll talk about ALAC in the future. Like that is like a little bit of a bandaid over that because, you know, they mm. can voluntarily get involved with a group like ALAC. Anyway, sorry. I just, it's, that was one thing that was like wild to me where I was like, what? You guys don't have to count your mice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> it's very interesting because we have what's called like congruency at our institution. And so if a PI is receiving a federal grant, so like from NIH, we have to look at basically like their grant application and compare it to their protocol and make sure that things add up. So like right. if they're saying, I am going to use zebrafish mm -hmm. um, to do my work, you know, looking at heart regeneration or something mm -hmm. like that, but their protocol says they're gonna be using pigs that's not adding up. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and so, again, that's why, again, going back to IACUC, it's very important to have one because sure. you have somebody that's looking at that and being like, where are these funds being used for? Right. Mm. And, you know, just making sure that, you know, things add up so that, you know, the institution doesn't get in trouble, but we mm -hmm. also want to do what's like best for the animals sure. and understanding like how they're going to be used and such. I always consider that folks like you, Amber, that work with the IACUC are, I... I think you guys are like the front line of accountability when it comes mm -hmm. to a lot yeah. of this stuff. That's what you guys are like. I always talk about like animal care staff that are on the floor are like the front line of like animal health and welfare. And mm -hmm. they're the ones that are reporting those things. But as far as accountability uh, in research, that's all you guys. And like, we need you guys for that reason. I was just going to say like, that's, I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think what it is, is like, it's nice to have you as the eye cook there because yeah, there's a plenty of people who work in research who are great and they're going to do what's mm -hmm. right for the animals and best by them. But, you know, and, and that's probably the majority of people, right? But there are, are always going to be outliers. And that's when it's really nice to have you guys there as an additional, you know, like oversight committee, especially if you have like post-approval monitors or someone who like rotate around through lab areas and like look through what's going on. And 
you can catch some things that are going on that maybe are are not as good, right? Like when, and so it's just nice to know that there's an additional thing for, especially for certain principal investigators who might be sort of pushing the bounds of what they're supposed to be doing, right? Like we're just all trying to make sure that the health and welfare of the animals is like the best that it can be within this yeah. context. I did have one question. This is like from kind of an outside perspective as far as someone that's kind of new to like learning all these regs. It seems to me that things like the AWA, the Animal Welfare Act, are pretty rigid and like they've been set for some time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are kind of significant gaps as far as what species they cover or don't cover. But then you have, you know, this PHS policy that kind of is, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it's, it's kind of the purpose there is to be number one more flexible like it seems like policies in phs policies change and update pretty regularly yeah. or at least get proposed on that and like there's a whole process for that but it also almost seems like it is there to try to like bridge those gaps that the awa has am i yeah. wrong is that kind of like what the role is of the phs policy it's not just yeah. elevating the work that people are doing it's also making sure that like there is some policy that covers you know the stuff that's been missed in the awa yeah, that's how I interpret it as well. And so in that way, like we can cover like fish or mm -hmm. anything that's not covered by the AWA, basically. Okay. And I think that is pretty helpful because otherwise you run into situations where like, I know like cephalopods is kind of like a thing right now mm -hmm. or in other countries, they're like, no, they're an animal and mm -hmm. they need to be treated as such. Mm -hmm. But we haven't quite gotten there yet. I did see a little blurb about it online. Um, to where they were kind of considering, okay, it's not covered by AWA, but it's also not covered by um, PHS. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do? <laughs> Is it still going to be concerned? Because they're highly intelligent animals. But ALAC has policies on cephalopods and or they're trying to make them. So that's, yeah. again, spoiler alert, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so again, like these things, like they are, you know, people are talking about them and I'm sure, you know, and sometime in the future, there's going to be like an amendment to these policies mm, to include sure. those animals, yeah. which is like great. And then on a more serious note, just going back to, you know, when you do run into issues, which we like to call them non-compliance issues, because mm -hmm. that's ultimately why IACUC is there, because we want to avoid non-compliance issues that get reported to USDA. Because if you guys aren't familiar, USDA, they just kind of show up. Mm -hmm. um, whenever, mm. like unannounced, which is why when you're doing those IACUC inspections, um, you at least kind of know when they're going to happen. Like you're pretty much prepared for it. You right. know kind of what is expected out of you. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, we have those done pretty regularly. But when it's like USDA or ALAC, you really don't know. Like you right. kind of have an idea. But again, those are going to be more rigorous, like, mm -hmm. you know, especially when they're looking at like the animals and such. And so just being prepared for that, because if there's anything that comes back, that could ultimately get you shut down, like the facility, the lab, or even like the institution in some cases, if it's very mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. So that, again, is also why important it is to have like IACUC and then also to have these like regulations in place. But anyway, speaking more on USDA. And so we kind of talked about or touched on like how it doesn't include like all animals. It's only warm blooded. And so some examples are dogs, cats, non-human primates, rabbits, hamsters, guinea pigs, and excludes birds that are bred for research rats and mice and so the bird thing we just learned about recently which i thought was it's kind of crazy i still have to wrap my head around it um that it's only birds that are bred for research 
I mean, they're trying to avoid chickens. That's the thing, yeah. right? But like, like so it, it excludes bird spread for research. But like, what about people that, you know, USDA covers like zebra finch uh, breeders, right? And like people are buying from a dealer that deals in zebra finches, mm. not to sound like zebra finch, zebra fish, whatever. I'm, I yeah. picked, a, picked a bad bird species, <laughs> canaries, whatever. Yeah. Um, now, how does it work when like people are buying from a USDA? I'm assuming USDA covers birds as far as like if someone's milling canaries yeah. for the pet trade or budgies, mm. and then they're going to end up in research. Like, I, how does that? Ha- I don't know how that works. Sorry. Yeah. And that's something like I still have to kind of look into, mm-hmm. but I would assume, yeah, if it's used for research, it mm-hmm. might not be covered. Okay. But like you said, if it's coming from a dealer to where they're like just kind of breeding them, mm-hmm. then yeah, what does that mean? So that is like really interesting that they're, I mean, it's good that they're kind of adding more information relating to that and kind of trying to expand things because there are some animals I left out of this as well. I know like we have like werewolf mice. Before it enjoys another fresh kill, the mouse proclaims its territory by howling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> what is that? You should look. Why up. have They're I never cool. heard of that? That's incredible. Um, there's another name for them. It escapes me, but we just call them werewolf mice. But they basically like <laughs> howl at the moon. Like they're what? yeah yeah. If you don't put just... a drop about werewolf, <laughs> you need a drop. It's a grasshopper mouse. Yes. Yeah. Oh, grasshopper, grasshopper mouse. Onkamis. 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 Oh, because they howl. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. They don't so turn into a mouse no, 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 wolf no, but... <laughs> warg. A mouse wolf warg and then the full moon. Prove it. They don't turn you have into to a lock warg. down the facility on the full moon and no one can go in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like so freaking adorable. And yeah. it's just like some people have gotten really good shots of them where they're just like the moon is in the background. They're just like, ah, that's so like... funny. <laughs> but yeah. So that's USDA. Um, so we can briefly go over NIH. And so, as I mentioned before, that's one of the largest agencies under PHS that funds and conducts biomedical research, and it provides guidelines and sets standards for research involving animals, ensuring scientific rigor and ethical treatment of animals in projects funded by the agency. And so, I feel like for our institution, or at least what I see with our protocols, I feel like 90% of them are funded by NIH, mm-hmm. and probably 10% are funded by what we call like other. And so, that could be like a by a medical company or something like that. That's not like NIH, but how, or do you guys know um, with your institutions, like if most are funded by NIH or something else? I have no idea. I think a lot of the R whatever grants, R01s, R21s, yeah. those, mm-hmm. those are all NIH. Yeah. Uh, so there's a large portion. I don't know what the breakdown is. Uh, you know, like then there's like HHMI has like, you know, grants that they provide mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I'm not I'm not sure what the breakdown is, but I think it's largely NIH. I'm still trying to learn what all those different like RO whatever's mean. Because yeah. I've had times where I'm just like someone comes down, they're very happy and they're like, my RO1 got whatever. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm happy for you or I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> I don't know what that means because I'm a dumbass. I'm just here feeding the fish. I um, mean, RO1 for sure is like the like sort of the as far as I know, kind of the best kind of overarching grant, a lot of times okay. they're like a few million dollars and like they can help fund. Usually if you get an R01, 
you're happy because you could probably get yourself a postdoc or something mm-hmm. like that to like help or a tech or something to help okay. do all the things you need yeah. uh, to get I done. I need to so. learn all of that stuff, but it's not a high priority <laughs> for me. I'll just know, continue right? being happy or sad for people. If I'm they sorry tell if me I got things. that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds about right. And I know there are ones where I want to say it's like R35 or something like that, but it's like one of those really big grants to where it encompasses like multiple PIs on one grant um, and kind of like splits it up. But hopefully I'm right about that. If not, I know there is a grant out there (laughs) to where it's just like a really massive grant. And so Mm. just goes to show there's like all different types of grants like under NIH um, that can fund these research projects, which is really cool. And then lastly, we'll go over ALAC. And so ALAC is the Association for Assessment and Accreditation of Laboratory Animal Care. And so while this is not a regulatory body, so not like USDA, like we talked about, ALAC provides accreditation for institutions that voluntarily adhere to high standards for the care and use of animals, including fish. Mm. And so for our institution, we are ALAC accredited. We have been accredited for quite a while, I think now. And so that's basically like the highest standard Mm -hmm. that you can achieve in the field of laboratory animal science. And so it's kind of like a badge of honor when you get Mm -hmm. that from ALAC that says like this institution is freaking amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like totally voluntary, right? Like you sign up and you agree to, you know, doing all of these things above and beyond what the minimal requirements are, which is great. Mm-hmm. And it's peers. So like, mm-hmm. I believe it's like sort of like peer review. So like there will be like, it'll be consistent of like, let's say so one person from Columbia. I know my director serves as an ALAC member. And so they'll get like different, you know, veterinarians or whatever from like three or four different institutions. And they'll all travel to one institution to be like, that site visit. Yeah, they're nice. called like ad hoc consultants, right? Something along those lines. I yeah. don't know who's ad hoc versus like a regular ALAC. Right, right, like right, I don't right, know right. how that works exactly. But basically like it's a nice way to just kind of like, you're kind of sometimes inspecting each other's institutions in a way. And it's definitely like, you're looking at it with a critical eye and they go over like everything. It's the biggest, like, it's not an inspection, right? It's a site visit. They site visit, say, do not call it an inspection. But it, but it is like the biggest sort of to-do that we usually have because there's a lot of prep work and they look at like so much stuff, you know? So yeah, and and you said including fish, they've started, we started voluntarily like having them look at our cuttlefish yeah. too. Sure. Uh, oh, so that cool. is the invert that they do usually come take a look at. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just for fun, to like check mm-hmm. things out. Um, but we sort of encourage them to, because it's an international body, so it has a little more bearing you know, it has more influence from Europe and stuff like that, which is a little bit bit further ahead of us in terms of regulation, even though they're not regulatory. <laughs> I was going to keep saying that. I yeah. like, we just had a town hall where the, uh, one of the higher ups in research uh, was talking about our, because we're, we're, we're actually prepping for an ALAC site visit in like a mm. month, a month and a bit, actually like exactly a month from now, I think. You got this. You got <laughs> yeah, this. I'm, I'm really not concerned. Like I feel that our program's really strong, but yeah. uh, the interesting thing you were saying that Amber, you guys have been involved, your, your institution has been involved for a long time. I, we, we were told that this, that I think it was 1976 when our facility first got accredited. Nice. Mm. Or our the animal program, not the, like our facility didn't exist at that point, but the animal program at our institution across all of the different like satellites and whatever mm-hmm. uh, has been part of ALAC since 76 or something like that. The 70s. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And usually like the ALAC site visits, they go pretty well for us. Um, 
I think they only recently started looking at like our fish facility. I mean, it's only been there since like 2019. Mm -hmm. um, but just oh. like actually bringing people that like have worked with zebrafish yes. or have a good understanding of zebrafish, I feel like just recently they started doing it and mm -hmm. taking a bit of more interest in that. So mm -hmm. yay, ALEC. So they have been giving us actually feedback on like mm -hmm. how we can improve the fish facility. I think sure. there's still improvement with bringing people along to mm -hmm. actually know because sometimes they'll comment on certain things that it's just like that's again we got to get out of that rodent mindset mm -hmm. and bring mm -hmm. it to the fish mindset and mm -hmm. you know sometimes you can't put those two things together yeah um, but overall it at least starts the conversation for how to you know provide care for these animals i do have to say like uh, as someone who's been present for site visits, like a bunch of site visits from different organizations. So in Canada, we have the CCAC, Canadian Council for Animal Care uh, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Research. Um, and they do site visits that are very, very similar to ALAC. And I, in my experience, as someone who's like kept all these weird species in research, I don't want to be facetious. I love all these fo site visitor mm -hmm. folks, but you sometimes get, I'm hiding in my shirt now. Let me explain this. I just find that sometimes, and maybe Josh <laughs> and Amber, you guys can like, tell me you've experienced this as well. You will get somebody who read the book or whatever, the guide the night before oh, pertaining yeah. to fish, and they're going to try to catch you on something and they think you're not going to know it. And I'm like, mm -mm, buddy. <laughs> you mean they read the three lines? <laughs> or sometimes it'll be like, I actually helped write the guidelines. So <laughs> not in this country, but back home, it's like, I helped write them. I don't know what to tell you. We are doing what I wrote because this is what we do in my facility in part. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. I've just had like people that thought they were, smart and try to catch me on water chemistry stuff and i'm like bro mm -mm. <laughs> no <laughs> you want to see my last my last pro article on water chemistry oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pinned up <laughs> <laughs> but no i love the alex stuff i love you know i just love telling people about our program so like when mm. folks come by so i'm kind of sad that like i'm not gonna be there for alex because i'm going to a conference that's the exact same time as alex mm. but mm. i feel bad that i'm leaving people that are maybe going to be a little deer in the headlights about all of this um I, I just uh, signed up to be an ALAC ad hoc person. I want to do nice. that, but I think just I just missed buy. the deadline, right? You did. It was today. <laughs> I just saw, You know what, Josh? I swear to God, I was looking while you started talking about ad hoc stuff. I've had that tab open in my browser for at least a year and a half. Oh, my God. And I'm looking at it right now. I, yeah. I would like to be an ad hoc person as well, because I'd love to, you know, just see what other facilities are doing and like yeah. absolutely help guide them into like, hey, this is, you know, because I'm sure you guys probably agree. ALAC and like a lot of these policy things. Right. But ALAC more so than anything is in this country anyway, is a tool in part to help you get things that you need for your facility that maybe no one is willing to pay for. Do you know mm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like uh, I back home in a pre previous facility, we needed a new wash bay because ours was falling apart. And mm. so it's a matter of not that you're like, you know, cause like Ralph the other day was like, you know, talk about <laughs> staging stuff. Staging, and it's yeah. not that you're staging stuff, but you're kind of like, look at that. 
look at this, look at that. And then they're like, oh, make a note, you know, and it's like, um, and they can, you can use that as a tool to go to your institution hat in hand and be like, this is something we need to fix, please, money, please. (laughs) (laughs) And so I find that like, that can be a tool to try to improve things, right? So, you know, if your institution or powers that be or the PI that is using your facility says, this is, I don't care about this and I don't want to pay for it. There are, you know, tools that, like ALAC where you can actually help them mm-hmm. better and elevate the work that you're doing or the husbandry or the welfare, whatever. Um, and I have definitely done that in the past where it's like, yeah, I I need a new dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> Come with me. Come with me. Look, Look at this. <laughs> I mean, exactly. it's good, yeah, because if you get high marks, it's just like, well, then... Everything's fine. I don't know why you're complaining about the fact you don't have a dishwasher. Yeah, sometimes that sucks, right? <laughs> yeah, like it yeah. was just yeah. like they're like everything is perfect, and you're like, well, is it? Like I think we could it work could out a few better. things. Yeah, it could always be better, but yeah. I I just always think of like A lock is really important, and I'm like proud that our facility is long term A lock, but like it's also a tool that you can use to further the program that you already have that's very strong. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that kind of ends our little spiel on all these regulatory bodies. We sort of already talked about our experiences yeah, we definitely with did. these agencies, but I kind of skirted by one question that I forgot to ask at the beginning of the episode. But I want to word it a little bit differently here. So do you guys believe that regulation is necessary when it comes to using animals for research or caring for them? You want to go first, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I I think so. I I don't know. I I just think that I mean, you kind of said it before. It's like it's important because you know, they they didn't have a choice to be here, right? If they're using research or whatever. They're just, you know, existing in this in this world and they don't really have a say. They don't have a way of communicating if they feel pain or if they, you know, need something, right? They don't have a way of communicating that always mm-hmm. besides like some limited behaviors. And so like, mm-hmm. it's so important for us to be able to provide that and regulation just adds that extra level of protection for them uh, so that institutions don't sort of get away from what's best for the animal. And I think that, you know, I think when you're outside of research and you don't know anything about it, like someone who's completely oblivious to that stuff, you probably think it's just completely unfettered, right? Like that there's just, it's a free for all and people are just doing whatever they want, like evil scientists. But in Mm -hmm. in reality, there's a whole lot of uh, important advocacy for the animals that goes on through these regulations. So that's why Mm -hmm. I think they're important. I totally agree. And I think like when you boil it down as much as maybe you know, there's a whole us versus them that the PIs like tend to be like, think that, you know, I, and I, I, I'm no, not, I'm not saying all PIs are like this, but like there are PIs that feel that folks like you, Amber, and I'm not singling you out, but I'm just saying you're an IACUC person, uh, that your whole goal is to try to stop them from being able to do science. Right. Yeah. And it's not that, That's not the case. But when you boil it down, regulations and policies at various different levels when it comes to working with animals comes down to doing good science and doing ethical science, right? Like we can think about decades and decades and not even all that long ago when, you know, there was unethical science being done with humans, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it wasn't Not that long that ago, long ago yeah. and it still exists today where there are like really horrific beliefs about you know different uh people having different 
pain levels and how whether mm-hmm. they tolerate pain. We didn't think babies felt pain for a really long time, you know, like don't even get me started about the fish pain thing. <laughs> but like <laughs> it, it's it's like to like to be as simplified as possible, it's a matter of like it's part of the way that we help ensure that people are doing good science and that people aren't doing science that's already been done like 15 million times or science that's being done with an inappropriate model organism, you know, Mm -hmm. all those kind of things like, you know, doing uh, heart research on a species that is not a good model for a mammalian heart, you know, um, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I think it's just like, I don't like the us versus them. I don't like the, you know, it's it's like a versus situation that really bothers me that people have that mindset but it's just like just another step in making sure that people are doing good science and the difference is you know we are dealing with living breathing things that like are not here voluntarily you know i like you guys alluded to it's you know this the least that we can do for various creatures that you know are don't get to clock out and they don't take vacation and you know they're just here like saving lives or, you know, furthering science. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think it's important. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with everything that both of you guys said. And that's why I try to encourage, or at least for our department, we try to encourage like as many people as possible to join the committee so that they get a better understanding of like what we do. Because again, it's not just like bullying people around basically Mm -hmm. and getting them to do what we want because that's not the point at all. Yeah. And we definitely want people to be able to continue to do their research, but like you said, in an ethical way. And we didn't really touch on this at all, but like the three R's. And so reduction, refinement and replacement. That's a whole separate episode. Yeah. And so basically just these you know, three things to keep in mind when you're doing any kind of research and especially with animals, because we don't want excessive use of like animals or using, like you said, the wrong animal model for a particular research mm-hmm. and things like that. And so, yeah, just like inviting people to see what we do. So that way they can also inform us like, hey, I think there's a better way of doing something. Or if we're reviewing like a zebrafish protocol, these are things that we should be looking for Mm -hmm. rather than just like, you know, things that, you know, we may have like certain biases and that's a good way to kind of remove those biases Mm -hmm. before we like review protocols or before we do like an inspection and things like that. Because that's really the only way we can like move forward. Because mm-hmm. especially for zebrafish, um, it is like an up and coming thing. But we're also kind of stuck in this weird bubble where we're still doing things that we did like 20 plus years ago. Yeah. And mm. that are clearly not working. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I feel like as long as we, you know, continue have, to have regulations, but then also amend those regulations, I think mm-hmm. we will, you know, get to the point that we need to get to. Sure. Great. Yeah. Well said, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we'll take the last few minutes to go over some, I guess, common questions that people have, like specifically regarding zebrafish and Mm -hmm. um, research. And so the first one is, does the PHS policy apply to live embryonated eggs? And so although avian and other egg-laying vertebrate species develop backbones prior to hatching, OLA 
interprets the PHS policy as applicable to their offspring only after hatching. And so just to preface, uh, OLA is the Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare, which oversees the care and use of research animals in any public or private organization, business, or agency. And so the egg-laying adult animal is covered by the PHS policy, but OLA expects assured institutions to have policies and procedures in place that address the care euthanasia of animals that hatch unexpectedly. And so for us, we follow the AVMA guide, uh, which pertains to like the euthanasia of animals, like how to humanely euthanize animals. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of like the guide that we follow. But I know that every institution is also different. We kind of had a discussion about that yeah. I feel like months ago where people oh, yeah. were, had different euthanasia methods. Mm -hmm. And it's a little, this whole thing with the fact that, you know, fish are egg bound or the fish that we work with are egg yeah. bound. Not all fish are, but um, the fact that once they hatch, they're considered an animal. Yeah. And that, that like is a sticky thing for a lot of folks because, you know, as you said here, it's kind of based on avi avian policy, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that makes some certain people very angry. So, you know, they, they technically need to start being counted in the U.S. If you're under PHS policy, you're following it as per the guidelines uh, mm -hmm. once they hatch. So once they're out of that chorion at like a couple or three days, yeah, that's an animal that you count. And it's part of your census. Um in Canada, it's five days. So we basically count like swim up once they're free swimming for most species. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's similar in Europe. It's like five or seven days a lot of the time. But mm -hmm. so that that's an interesting thing. And I don't know if that'll ever change. But yeah, that kind of goes into our second question about if the policy applies to larval forms of amphibians and fish. And so, yes, it does um, because they're covered by the PHS policy. And so the PHS policy applies to the offspring of egg laying vertebrates only after hatching. And so as Christine was saying, Sorry, fish I, larvae I totally in this case. ate your no, next thing. No, <laughs> you're totally fine. Um, but yeah, they typically hatch three days post-fertilization. Um, and so that's when you kind of have to like at least at our institution, I think we count prior to that. Um, but it's so weird because they don't have a lot of guidance when it comes to like how to count fish. Mm -hmm. That's been yeah. a whole thing for us too. Mm -hmm. Like um, we, our Aya cooks expect a good faith estimate of the number of mm -hmm. hatched zebrafish every month uh, to be reported. And that was another thing that was a challenge, you know, for the Aya cook folks was, you know, once they started, once the zebrafish folks, you know, with this, updated PHS policy, or once we started making sure we were in line with it, trying to explain to the IACO folks that like, yeah, the census number that we're putting in the protocol is like 65,000 Yeah, because it's embryos, you know, <laughs> and like, millions. yeah, it can be. And, it, yeah. and it, maybe it should be for some folks work, you know, depending mm -hmm. on what the renewal time is, et cetera. But like, that was really hard for them to first kind of grasp that like, you know, the vast, vast majority of these embryos are not going to see past the embryological stage, you know, mm. past five, seven days. Mm -hmm. um, but like, that is the crux of the work that most of the people in my facility are doing. They're not working with the adults, you yeah. know, they'll have a couple hundred adults on their protocol or whatever, um, but they'll have 65,000 larvae come through that protocol. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, again, that's where we need to kind of get away from like the rodent mindset right, because right. you have like census counting and things like mm -hmm. that. You typically only have like four or five, I think, in a cage. Right. Um, so it's very easy to count that up and you have like barcodes and things like sure. that. But with fish, like it's just so freaking hard because <laughs> you can have so many in one tank mm -hmm. and then some will die off, yep. especially during that first, you know, period. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, definitely something that I think a lot of facilities, you know, struggle with. And especially like with their IOCOs, like how do we handle that census wise? And I think that for me, and uh, you guys feel free to share your experiences, but for me, in my experience, and whether it's the IACUC or the ACC back home in Canada, that's where the very first kernel of like uh, bad, like not goodwill, the opposite of that oh, <laughs> happens. Bad will, <laughs> animosity, that's too much. But like, that's kind of the first kernel of that between your zebrafish PIs and the IACUC or the very like, rel- like similar bodies in other countries where it's like, mm-hmm. well, you can't even figure out how we use our animals. So like, why are you telling us how to do our jobs? You know, yeah. um, I, in my experience, that's kind of been the first thing where it's like, well, they don't even understand how our census works. Why are they telling me what to do? Yeah. Um, I, I always, I always get really scared where I'm like, I cook people, make sure you know, <laughs> at least this, this is like yeah. the, the basic thing where you need to understand this aspect of the work that people are doing. Otherwise you're in for a bad time because you're going to lose, people are going to lose faith in you and not want to yeah. listen to you. So, so you've mentioned a few times, but I just wanted to like make it clear, like there's a line of delineation between vertebrate and invertebrate animals. And that's like, it's sort of an archaic line, right? Because the assumption is, it's like invertebrates, maybe a lot of them don't have brains or they have like, like, like less evolved brains. And so like those animals are considered a little more rudimentary in terms of how they experience pain, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then Mm -hmm. when we get up to vertebrate animals, it's like, oh, this is like a higher level of thinking, higher level of pain aversion, all these things. But I think that like, so they use that to their advantage for zebrafish where it's like, oh, these animals aren't considered vertebrates until a certain age, right. A certain Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also true of uh, when we talk about things like, um cephalopods right and, mm-hmm. and it's kind of problematic for cephalopods because they don't follow that typical tri- typical yeah. trend line in terms of intelligence right they're kind they're of aliens like... right <laughs> yeah they're aliens um and Glorblock to you <laughs> um yeah so like i just think it's like it's interesting how like yeah we still need to do some work on this but like if we do follow that line and that's why even though cephalopods aliens are a lot more intelligent than maybe some vertebrates. I mean, I guess it depends on what we're talking about, right? They're still kind of have this no regulation as up until now, which it will change, but you know, yeah. So that's it. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it definitely makes it hard like for cephalopods right now. Cause I mm-hmm. don't know what you guys are going off of. And, but I do know you do have someone like we just spoke with him, uh, look back on our first episode of mm-hmm. the season Shout out, uh, Connor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but someone who is an expert, like in the field, who has worked with cephalopods for a really long time. But what if you mm-hmm. don't have that? You're kind of just like going in blind. Mm-hmm. And we definitely don't want to do that when handling animals. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really good that they start having that conversation now, especially if people are going to use cephalopods and then probably, you know, maybe not use that order of hierarchy. It's just a little more nuanced than just does it have a spine right but yeah exactly um but going on to our next question so what guidelines should i cook follow for fishes amphibians reptiles birds and other non-traditional species used for research and so the phs policy is intentionally broad in scope and does not prescribe specifics about the care and use of any species which i have such an issue with like when i first <laughs> saw this i was like are you kidding me because <laughs> again like what is there to go off of then? Just go like by your feelings. Yeah, exactly. I feel <laughs> like the, the fish will like this, like, you know. <laughs> but I think that's like the, you know, the 
power of having people like you guys who were initially fish hobbyists. Mm. And that's where you got a lot of like your information about like, you know, how to care for fish and like how to breed fish and things like that. And I feel like if you didn't have that or like people going into the field, like who don't have any animal experience, that's kind of what you kind of like, that's kind of what you end up with. Mm -hmm. It's just like, Oh, like, I need to do this research, but like I'm using animals, like something that's alive and breathing. Like mm -hmm. you're going to have a lot of mistakes being made. And again, we just want to avoid that. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But generally people follow what's called the guide. And so the guide is basically like, it's this book. And so there's been a lot of versions of the guide and I think it's on like the 14th edition or something like that. Mm. Um, but that was last done like 10 years ago. So we need some updating here, you guys. I volunteer. <laughs> yeah, good resume builder. Yeah. yeah. I have done it before back home, so. <laughs> but the guide is used to assist institutions in caring for and using animals in ways judged to be scientifically, technically, and humanely appropriate. And so the guide is like, I think you're really useful to get that like broad sense of like, for a particular animal species, like this is how your facility should look. This is how you should care for the animal. It goes over pretty much everything, but at least for like zebrafish, when I just looked at it a couple of days ago, it was like two freaking pages. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that is not enough to cover these wonderful animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's, you know, way more articles that have been done on zebrafish, um, especially by like our own colleagues that have done more justice than the guide has. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm a little bit like, uh, I wish the PHS policy would kind of work a little bit more um, yeah. in providing like resources for people when it comes to using non-traditional animals, as we like to call it, mm -hmm. um, and not have to rely so much on the guide. Because I can't tell you how many times, like, especially during our iCook meetings, we'll be like, oh, is there something in the guide that pertains to this, like, you know, issue or problem or whatever? And we're just like, well, there's like one sentence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how do we interpret that one sentence? And yeah, I don't know if you guys have also run into issues with that. So I wanted to just clarify. So I'm looking it up now. It looks like there's mm -hmm. been eight editions of the book because we're on the eighth edition. So that means okay, there's been sorry. eight, right? No, no, I just, it's fine. I just wanted to make sure we clarify. Mm -hmm. And then the last one was, came out in 2011. So yeah, you said 10 years. It's now, it's like, what, over 10, right? That's 13 yeah. years. That's crazy. So it's <laughs> mm -hmm. it's about time. Christine's going to head up the charge. Yeah, <laughs> As to the zebrafish and other, I don't want to write about naked mole rats. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> too traumatized. But I, yeah, so I think like, so my experience with running into like, a little bit of a speed bump thing with the guide was when I first started in my facility, there was after an ALAC, there was a really prescriptive, like, uh, I don't know, like modification that needed to be made as far as like how frequently the tanks were changed in my facility. Yeah. It's like suggestion for improvement or something. Yeah. Yeah. Thank SFI. you. That's, that's the term. Yeah. And, but it was like way more prescriptive than it needed to be. Again, this happened mm. before I started, but like I came in while this was like kind of a back and forth between the PIs and like the, 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 I cook and the animal care department. And, you know, it was like, so I had, you know, thankfully we, I have some people that I really look up to like Diana, who, you know, is the master of like all of these things and knows mm -hmm. these things so well. And I spoke, you know, with her and like other folks, even on like the Danio zoom Fridays, et cetera, to be like, help. I don't 
<laughs> we don't have the resources to change these tanks. The other thing is, you know, we can change the tanks at the frequency they want us to do, but like I'm, we're wasting water. We mm -hmm. are not mm -hmm. getting tanks back in a fat, like a timely fashion, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, and when, when our facility doubled in size to 70 plus racks, there was no way I was changing, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of tanks every week, you know, to keep mm -hmm. that eight week you know, cycle yeah. happening. Mm -hmm. So we were able to, you know, by looking at the guide, say, okay, the guide isn't prescriptive as far as, you know, tanks have to be changed this frequently. There are certain triggers that can happen that reflect what the guide says. And so what we did was, you know, with the, the blessing of the iCook and everyone, we said, okay, we're going to make a list of triggers. We'll even make pictorials. It's all good. Mm -hmm. And we're going to say, this is when we change our tanks. Yeah. When any of these, one of these things happen or 16 weeks have progressed right okay. mm. and you know we're worried about like there's a little bit of unknowns with zebrafish tanks as far as like the biofilm fouling and that kind of stuff risks of health to the fish mm. um, but we found for our own facility and this is a performance-based policy 16 weeks is about as far as we can take it um, before we start to see, you know, tanks are getting kind of gross um, mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, they maybe they're going to be a higher risk of overflowing, that kind of thing. And so, you know, we have our spot changes that, you know, certain things trigger, you know, algae, et cetera. And then we have our, you know, 16 week baseline across the board. So yeah. that's been, you know, and the guide was helpful for that, but it was helpful because it was vague. Yeah. In some ways, you know, and so it does go both ways, but like it would have been, it would be not great if the guide said to a facility that was our size or bigger, you have to change all these tanks every three weeks because, mm. you know, so anyway, that's my only real experience with the guide as far as like direct interaction. So what about you, Josh? Um, I, I'm trying to think not, not a whole lot. I mean, occasionally we'll go in there. I mean, they have like some i think uh suggested uh tank densities and stuff like mm -hmm. that and there was a few things for frogs that were useful uh but overall you know the only time i'm opening up the guides is just double check that we're doing everything like within that you know kind of doing it correctly and and there's very few things that are sort of letter of the law stuff mm -hmm. uh, but yeah i do d double check those things and our eye cook obviously spends a lot more time uh checking that since that's sort of like their bible a little bit i mean mm -hmm. i don't know maybe you could tell me otherwise but like i've sort of been taught that that's like the book that they use yeah. a lot you can think um, of it as the bible because pe different people have different interpretations of it <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> oh my god i saw the look on your face i was like oh christine's coming in with a smart <laughs> remark <laughs> i actually thought of it a little bit ago then i was like maybe it's not an appropriate thing to say but Until then i was, I was like, like i'm gonna Bible. do it i'm doing it you <laughs> said it. you said it first so <laughs> sorry uh yeah but that's all i have to say yeah. on the matter no i agree with you both like i think it could be good or bad i think it gives you know institutions the ability to kind of like you know take what they need to take from it, but then also kind of develop their own policies. Mm -hmm. um, some that may work or some that may not work at all. Um, but again, just kind of, you know, the only real way to move forward is to like try, you know, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have known like those True. tanks would have gone 16 weeks, you know, mm -hmm. if you hadn't tried. Sure. So, but it might be different for each facility as well. Like yeah. some facilities may have a lot more going on that necessitates like more, you know tank changes and such mm -hmm. but yeah i think we can actually skip like the next question because we did talk about tracking animals mm -hmm. a little bit and how difficult that could be especially with whatever system like iacook is using mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to count like animal numbers and such and like 
you know, charging um, PIs for that. So hopefully there's going to be more guidance like related to that when it comes to zebrafish. Um, and I do have kind of like a little blurb on that. Mm-hmm. So one action identified by the research community included in the report, reducing administrative burden for researchers, animal care and use and research in response to the 21st Century Cures Act, um, which basically is like an initiative to improve biomedical research is mm-hmm. my understanding. And so they're considering changing the applicability of the PHS policy to zebrafish larvae from immediately after hatching, so that three-day post-fertilization that we were talking about, to when larvae begin free feeding, so at approximately five to seven days. So that would definitely help out our PIs out there that work mm-hmm. a lot with embryos, especially if it's like seven days or after. Mm-hmm. And I think our institution kind of goes by that as well. I think a lot of places do. Yeah. And just like this is based on what EU policy is, but also Canadian policy. And Canadian policy changed from seven to five days because mm-hmm. we know a little bit like about better about staging and stuff since the previous time stuff was uh, the policy was written. But yeah, it would help as far as. I get I the reducing administrative burden thing. Yeah. A little bit of a roll eyes from me. Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. You guys don't even have to count your mice, whatever. Um <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I yeah, I I get where that's coming from though, because in some ways the the initial policy, PHS policy for fish is based on a little bit of a misguided idea of eggs being the same for all Mm. egg bearing species. Mm. So that's tough. But then I mean, like when you're talking about someone works with guppies, it's a fish when it is born. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because it's it's free feeding already. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So that's a little tough. All those guppy researchers be like, damn you. <laughs> but <laughs> it is true. Yeah. Like yeah. it is true. Like you have a fish that hatches out. Like what is a fish really, right? A fish yeah. that hatches out of its egg and then it s- sits in the mouth of the mom for yeah. two weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it's got this gigantic uh yolk sac and yeah. it's not like swimming around or anything. It's not acting like a like an animal mm-hmm. in that sort of uh you know uh rudimentary sense i guess uh so yeah it's just like yeah like it's sort of that line blurs but you're right like we just sort of like shoehorned it into like egg hatch shell yeah (laughs) just use those terms it's a little bit trickier than that but it requires us to sort of like figure out how to parse that out a little bit better and then you've got the whole complication of like what about researchers that are doing embryological work that requires them to decorinate, like to hatch manually, oh, no. hatch the let's fish, not, right? Let's yeah, not get I, into this. I, and that's one of those things where it's like, that is outside the <laughs> the purview of like, we're like, we're not getting into that, like at, at yeah. our institution. But, you know, technically under this like PHS policy, those are counted guys, you know, like technically. Um, so I don't know, but yeah, I am very interested in, I haven't had a chance to read the Secures Act in any real, uh, but I have read the reducing administrative burden thing, and I'm just kind of like, okay, sure. Yeah, because <laughs> that could go either way, right? Like, <laughs> It's interesting coming from a different part of the world where mm-hmm. the administrative burden, quote unquote, is different, and uh, it's something that's always been the case, and, you know, it's not real, it's not caused science to collapse with what mm-hmm. uh, you know it's always been okay that people need to count their mice and their rats and mm. they're under the animal regulatory act just like every other animal is right so and it's like people have been doing it and it's really been okay but i feel like the unfortunate thing with stuff like awa where it's like 
the horse is out of the barn. Like those animals aren't counted. Cats except, out of the bag. Yeah, There's exactly. The Pandora's box is opened. <laughs> You're never getting that stuff back in there yeah. again, right? So, uh, I mean, things like Cures Act, I think, are maybe trying to ameliorate that a little bit and like try to fix any of these like gaps. Yeah. Where And I'm not saying that anyone's abusing the fact that there are gaps in these things, but the public certainly can be led to believe that that is the case. And that doesn't help any of us, right? Yeah. I, I had a friend today ask me about all the stuff we talked about today. And uh, I did a little search to try to find just like a primer to send her mm -hmm. uh, a document uh, just to kind of get a better idea of like what the framework is here. And the first things that come up are, you know, the various lobby organizations that want to point out all of the gaps that we talked about today. Mm. And that does not help us at all, you know, yeah. and that does not ensure that we can continue to do science with animals. Not that like we all want to keep doing science with animals. You know what I mean? Like, I think all of us would be happy if we could find a viable alternative, you know, three hours, all that kind of stuff. But like, it's a little scary to see like, lobby groups who specifically hone in on the fact that we have yeah. major gaps that look real bad to lay people mm -hmm. that's just my sorry i'm gonna keep soapboxing i'll stop <laughs> no no that's like all good things and yeah i think just to kind of like end it off like mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of improvement that needs to be made um to these regulations because mm -hmm. they're a good starting point but I think like overall, they're really not much to like work off of. And I think at least at our institution, we have done a really good job like filling in those gaps that you were talking about, Christine. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of developing a better relationship with not just like researchers, but also with like our veterinary staff, our animal mm -hmm. care staff, our research staff, um, even in some cases working with like sponsored research who handles like the grants for the PIs. Mm -hmm. I think it's just important to, you know, I don't see it being like, oh, it's one versus the other because yeah. that never works out. Mm -hmm. I think we're all kind of like, you know, in this together. And, you know, if we, like you said, want to keep doing like animal research, we're mm -hmm. going to have to like work together and we're going to have yeah. to like face these challenges together. And even like, you know, not just at the institutional level, but when you're talking at like the municipal level or the state level too, mm -hmm. like there are, are like people there that are involved, you know, there was some bad story that came out, I believe in this state a number of years ago. And after that, the governor said, we are never going to have an institution here that works with X species or X species, yeah. you know, and it was, everything was badly handled across the board and I'm not going to get into the story, but like, you know, you know, we talked like all these policies that we talked about today are like federal level. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are, you know, minutia further minutia, uh, but we like, there are different, like, <laughs> <work. other> words. <laughs> there's a myriad of these things that potentially are at the state level and it'll vary from state to state. Right. And those kind of things could really shut you down really fast if you're not careful. Right. We yeah. have all these states that are doing their own things and for all kinds of reasons these days. Right. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think we will wrap it up there. Awesome. Thanks, Thank you, Amber. Amber. Yeah. You did a great job. <laughs> Thanks for letting me talk. Yeah. You did great. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> for, we probably just steamroll a lot. You know, we love talking. <laughs> no worries. I have a lot of opinions on this stuff. This might be our longest episode yet. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. No, 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 no it's This good. is great. Remember right, when we me... said it would be a short episode? Mm -mm. Yeah. Oop, we were <laughs> wrong. I need to stop saying that. <laughs> Jinxing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good.
Cool. All right, I'm going to wrap up then. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for listening to Getting Fishy with it. You can find our website with show notes at gettingfishypod.substack.com. You can find us on Twitter at gettingfishypod and on Instagram at gettingfishypod. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Getting Fishy with it. If you want to drop us an email, you can send your complaints, questions, or adulations to gettingfishypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Our theme music is Best Time by Fast Sounds, and our audio is edited by our Sultan of Sound Drops, Amber Park Chiadini. We've been getting fishy with it. So keep schooling, my friends, because knowledge is power.